0: Uh, we're in verses 17 through 20. Today we're, uh, if you're just joining us, we're in the Sermon on the Mount that starts in chapter five and goes all the way through the end of chapter 7. Uh, and today's, uh, today's short passage that we're in, I think is just absolutely critical for us understanding the entire uh, Sermon on the mountain and probably even uh, uh, setting up all of uh, the gospel of Matthew. So, if you follow with me in verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least. In the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, here's our truth statement that, that Matt Q uh, helped write Jesus completes and accomplishes the story begun in the Old Testament. Therefore, True disciples must possess the whole person righteousness of the kingdom. I'll read that again. Jesus completes and accomplishes, and those two words are being used here to help us understand what fulfill means in this passage. So Jesus completes and accomplishes this story begun in the Old Testament. Therefore, true disciples must possess the whole person righteousness of the kingdom on verse 17 Jesus says do not think i have come to i've come to abolish their law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them there are a lot of words and phrases that we've got to zone in uh, on in in these few verses here so first the law or the prophets what does he mean when he says i have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, the, the phrase law and prophets uh, is used in scripture to refer to uh, all of the Hebrew scriptures, or, or as we call them, the old, like warm, fuzzy. Fe- law is a tough word for us. Uh, you probably don't have like warm, fuzzy feelings about the word law. Uh, the word uh, for law is Torah, um, and it does mean law, but when we think of law, We think of rules, we think of uh, codes, we think of regulations, uh, we probably think of authority figures that will impose penalties on us, right? Not exactly uh, happy feelings. Krauss said this, He said under no circumstances should Torah be translated as law. And then he goes on to say, While law is connected with the impression of something fixed, rigid, and static, instruction arouses the impression of something living, dynamic, in which uh, directions, suggestions, commands, orders, and advice are imparted. God's law for his people is instructive. It is, it is to be a guide for God's people. I think of the psalmist when the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Right? It shows us how to live. It shows us how to walk in God. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, uh, who I've who been uh, uh, quoting quite often, he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that's really helpful. He, he wrote this about the Torah. He says, Torah means all of Pentateuch. Right? In Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He says, uh, Torah means all of the Pentateuch, the story of Israel and instructions that accompany God's covenant with his people. And and I hope that's helpful for you to think more that way. It's really been helpful for me that when we read law, we need to think about the story of God and his people and the instructions that he gives his people in, in how to follow him. So we think, We think of the first five books of the Bible. We think the story of God. Certainly we start at the beginning in creation. When we see God's power and his creativity displayed as he creates everything in the universe. He makes humanity in his image. And he places them in this garden that is perfect. And they're to care for this garden. They're to flourish in this garden. It's the first picture that we have. Of human flourishing, we know that the serpent comes along and tempts uh, them. We know that that he twists the words of God and 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 lies to them. And the lie is, hey, if you rebel against God, it will be better for you. It's a lie about flourishing. And when we say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, and yet we still buy into that same lie today, that if we disobey God, if we rebel against him, that it will be better for us. So when we think of the story, we think of humanity rebelling. We think of the brokenness of sin, how it's marred all of creation, that no, no part of creation is left untouched, and yet God graciously, right off the bat, promises that he's, he's going to pursue these rebels He's going to save a people. We remember that it gets so bad that by the time Noah gets on the scene, God says he's got to bring judgment. He's going to send a flood because every human heart is just bent. It's intent on evil. So he brings the flood and yet saves this tiny remnant, Noah and his family. It's like this reboot of creation. And yet we know it doesn't take long for it to all end up in, in, in a similar terrible place. We, we think of Abraham, who God chose to be the father of nations, that this, that this nation would come from Abraham, this, this, this man who was old and didn't even have a son of his own yet, didn't have a kid of his own, and that from this nation, this nation would be blessed, and it would bless all the nations of the world so that they could see God, So they, it would, they would point to Yahweh. We remember that Abraham, Abraham had this uh, promised son, this miraculous son um, that the father was supposed to sacrifice. We remember that, that God provided the spotless sacrifice in its place. As we think about the story of God's people, we, we probably think about the cycle of, uh, of, of them rebelling against God, God disciplining them, them crying out, God coming to their aid. They swear allegiance to him. And then before long, they turn from him as if nothing had ever happened. We think about God being so faithful that he he makes covenants with his people. He he chooses them. He, He promises to love them and to save them. We think of him making a way through sacrifices, so that, that God could dwell in the midst of a sinful people. So God came up with this sacrificial system. There, there needed to be blood shed in order to cover sin. Right? This is how God could be with and amongst his people. So we, we hear law or Torah, we should think uh, about the story uh, of God and his people, this, this covenanting God. And the guidelines that he gives, that that he would deliver his people by way of sacrifice, that he would save them to be a holy nation set apart to be a light to the nations. James Sanders says the Torah is best defined as a story with law embedded in it. So when you're in scripture and you read law, I want you to think covenantal story, God's covenantal story. Think of this relational God, Yahweh, and his people. Think about the excellent instructions that he gives to guide his people so that they will flourish. So Torah, Torah isn't this cold, sterile word like the word law feels to us. Pennington says Torah is covenantal. It's relational. So that's the law. What about the prophets? When he says prophets here, we need to ask ourselves, okay, what did the prophets do? What did the prophets say? The prophets interpreted the law. They prophetically were a call to God's people, to this wholehearted faithfulness to the covenant that God made with his people. And there's a lot of different places we could go in the prophets, but one is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I also think of Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and following. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. This this, uh, doesn't feel like the outer righteousness of the Pharisees. This is whole person righteousness. God has always wanted a righteousness that goes deeper than the service. Deeper than the surface, but deep into our hearts that that penetrates all of who we are, our very being. God promises by the prophets to cleanse. He promises to give us this this new heart that he performs heart surgery, removing that heart of stone and and replacing it with a heart of flesh that beats for him. He promises to give us his spirit and and that by his spirit we walk in his ways. In a bit we'll get to the scribes and the Pharisees, in their attempts to live righteously, it was all under their power. I wonder, are you trying to be righteous under your own power? Are you trying to be good by, by what you can do? Are you trying to save yourself by living this really good, upstanding life? Do you impose rules that, that look like righteousness when you live them out, but have little or no impact on your heart? They have no impact on who you are as a person. It's just all external behavior that we try to modify but forget that God is after our heart. Our righteousness can never be righteous enough. The lie that you're a good person, it's a lie. It isn't true. You aren't good enough. You aren't righteous enough. God's standard is whole person righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. That's how God wants us to live. We can only live as God wants us to live by meeting Jesus, by trusting in Jesus. He gives us his spirit. By his spirit, we are changed. He gives us a desire to actually live for him, not just look like we're living a good life, not just external behavior, but but actually impacting all of who we are. We can't live for God by trying really, really hard. The prophets remind us of that. Prophets also pointed forward to when God would accomplish all that he had promised. They were pointing to a day when God would make all things new, a day when his kingdom would come, when it would be fully realized, when faith would be sight. Another critical word for us to understand here is fulfilled. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill them, the, the law and the prophets, we, we don't simply take that or only take that as Jesus came to live perfectly, though he, he did. He, he did perfectly obey everything that we cannot, everything that we fall short of. He did that, but that's not all he did to fulfill. He came to fulfill every promise of God, to complete and accomplish every hope in the Hebrew scriptures, to complete every plan that God had for creation, And there's so much more, obviously, to the story than I told you. I just gave you the Cliff Notes version. But Jesus came and would accomplish them all. He would come to save and form his people that would be light to the nation so that others could see the goodness of God through his holy, set-apart people. He didn't come to abolish or change the law. As one commentator wrote, he, he came to to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold, that it was always intended to hold. And fulfill is a big deal in Matthew. He, he isn't like I said, he's not just saying that he came to obey. right? He came to accomplish. He came to complete. Uh, fulfill is used 19 times in Matthew. It's already been used six times before we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There's a typology or, or, a figu- or figurative per, uh, predictions of what will be. And Matthew's helping us connect dots throughout his gospel. Here's one example. Matthew 2, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, we're told, to uh, Egypt in order to escape Herod. Herod is just, he's killing baby boys, trying to get rid of this possible rival to his throne. And Matthew quotes Hosea. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Israel is a type in the Old Testament, that, that points to Jesus. We remember in the story of God's people how, how they got to Egypt, right? They they went because there was a famine, but God, by his providence, had already sent Joseph, the, the son that was sold into slavery. Well, eventually he becomes the second in command. And, and then Israel, his family, comes because they need food, they need help. And he brings his family into Egypt. And and they do well uh, under the Pharaoh at the time. And they grow like crazy. They become a full nation. But it doesn't go so well with the next Pharaoh. The next Pharaoh is really harsh with them. And God sends Moses to deliver them. And God calls them out of Egypt. And and Egypt, uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament, is called God's son. So just as Israel, God's son, was called out of Egypt, now Jesus, the true and better son, was called out of Egypt to do and be what God's people couldn't completely do and be. Jesus is bringing to completion all that God began in the ancient times, Pennington says. Even the statement, I have come, is packed. Jesus is saying everything that the Hebrew Bible was pointing to is, is in, is me. I have come. I am the one that, that you have been longing for and looking for. Uh, Professor uh, Ray Lubeck, uh, Multnomah, he he said this. I think it's really helpful. He says, Jesus fulfilled the story of the Old Testament. He didn't eliminate the story. He didn't keep or obey the story. He is the goal of the story, the one figure around whom the story revolves. And then he says, the best illustration I know of is uh, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Is Aslan predicted in every chapter or paragraph? No. Does Aslan obey the earlier chapters? No. Does Aslan eliminate the need for the earlier chapters? No. How does Aslan fulfill all those passages that do not refer uh, to him explicitly? He's the hero, the one who oversees everything, both initiating and responding to everything that happens. He's the one who makes the story possible, both saving or judging every single character in the whole grand narrative of Narnia, whether or not they're even aware of it at the time. In Romans uh, 10.4, it reads uh, that Christ is the end of the law. What I understand Paul to be saying is that Christ is the goal of the law. In Jesus, everything in the Hebrew Bible is accomplished Completed. The whole story was always pointed to him. Verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? Not, not the smallest part, not, not, not a little comma or, or a dot uh, period will, will be missed. Jesus will execute what he has set out to do. And, and over the last few weeks as I've been thinking about this verse I've just been so encouraged, Not the, the slightest part of all of God's promises, of all of his plans, of all the hopes that he gives to God's people, not one of them will pass until all is accomplished. All of human history will come to a close, and we know that the world's gonna get worse, right? It's not going to get better, but not even the tiniest part of what God has promised will be lost. He will do what he has set out to do. And we can and should look forward to the coming of God's kingdom with complete confidence. Jesus will execute perfectly what he has promised. Even the statement when he says, I say to you, that's, that is packed. He's saying, I am the one who is telling you how all of this will be fulfilled. Right? He's saying this with authority because he has authority to accomplish and complete the entire story. The law and the prophets, they foretell him they either directly or, or foreshadow him in type. Jesus fulfills in the sense that he was predict, uh, in, in the sense that what was predicted came to pass, says John Stott. Even Jesus saying, "I have come." Tells us that the law and the prophets were pointed to him, that the promised one has come, and it is Jesus. He is the one who will fulfill, he will complete and accomplish all of the great promises that God has made to his people. More than any other uh, gospel writer, Matthew probably emphasizes uh, the, the scriptures, that the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. He uses the same phrase throughout his gospel. If you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll see this over and over again. He'll say, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He wants us to see that all of this was always pointing to Jesus, the Christ. And when we think of fulfilled, I'm sure one of the first places our mind goes to is the cross. That Jesus, as our substitute, takes on the penalty of sin. Here's what John Stott wrote. He said, The climax was his death on the cross in which the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both the priesthood and sacrifice, found its perfect fulfillment. Uh, then the ceremony ceased, yet as Calvin rightly comments, it was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed. And then Stock goes on to say, more fully confirmed, meaning that they were just a shadow of what would come in Christ. The substance belonged to Christ. Verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I see that word relaxes, and I look around our world, and there's a lot of relaxing of what God's word says or finding an alternate meaning for what it says this is happening all over the place. A lot of relaxing is happening, and it isn't. It isn't good. It's not even helpful, though we think it'll make things better for us. He, he says, "Least in the kingdom and greatest in the kingdom." These aren't degrees of righteousness or like rank in the kingdom. This is a poetic way of saying who doesn't get in and who does get into His kingdom. And I think verse twenty helps clear that up. But, but trying to make God's word more palatable. And teaching others to do the same is not the path to God's kingdom. And in the next few weeks, we'll go through these six examples that Jesus gives. And my guess is that um, each of us will be hit differently by, um, by these six examples. And some of them will hit and they will hurt really bad. And will want to hold God's word at least at an arm length away. Um, but that's not what we need The scribes and Pharisees, they had this uh, surface interpretation of the law. And Jesus comes, and he gives us the true interpretation. Like I said, we'll see that over the next few weeks. But he shows his disciples what obedience entails, what this whole person righteousness is lived out like. Verse 20, he says, uh, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and Pharisees were, were known for just strict obedience to the law. Right? If anyone looks righteous on the exterior, it was them. They were more religious than, than anyone. Right? They, they knew the scriptures better than anyone uh, you know. Again, uh, Professor Ray Lubeck from Multnomah, he said the Pharisees' chief problem during the times of Jesus was that they had turned everything in the Old Testament into law with hundreds of rules and regulations added to the ordinances already present within Exodus through Deuteronomy. That was both Jesus and Paul's chief criticism directed at them, that they had changed not only God's uh, revelation of himself into law, but also their whole relationship with God, which was supposed to be dynamic and intimate, and and it was devalued into mere legalistic observations. He goes on to say that they just came up with this deadening system of rules. So these religious leaders... Uh, had calculated that the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And, and they were passionate about following these and teaching others to follow these to a T. I mean, if that's who these people were, how could someone's righteousness exceed the righteousness of a scribe or a Pharisee? And, and it makes sense that without a new heart, that's necessary to have this whole person righteousness that the religious leaders made all these restrictions or or gave liberal permissions that would justify themselves when they couldn't keep the codes, right? They knew the people, they knew themselves, they knew it wasn't going to work. So they had all these rules about the commands. With the Sabbath alone, they had 39 categories to help define what work was and then for the sabbath day right the day that you're supposed to rest Um, then they had all these subcategories under those There was hundreds upon hundreds of 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 these sub rules to follow right and it, it defined everything how many steps you could take how many letters you could write how much food you could chew how many times you could chew that and on and on the rules went about how to rest which sounds super restful Right? Imagine going on a vacation with these guys. They had guardrails upon guardrails to try and make it so that the Sabbath could be obeyed. It was this rigid, external righteousness. And Jesus saying, that righteousness it doesn't cut it. It's, it's not enough. That righteousness will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Well, then what, what kind of righteousness do we need? Pennington uh, defines righteousness in Matthew this way. He says it's whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming, coming kingdom. And he's already given us two examples in the book of Matthew with this righteousness. The first comes in, in chapter 1. It won't be up on the screen, but the context is that uh, Mary and Joseph are engaged. Mary is pregnant. Uh, Joseph knows that he was not the cause of this pregnancy, and he didn't want to shame her, so he was going to quietly break it off that's Matthew's first picture he's called righteous that's the the first picture of righteousness in his gospel it's a picture of mercy we're told that Joseph as as he seeks we're told that Joseph is righteous as he seeks to show Mary grace okay this is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature will and coming kingdom the next is in chapter 3 Jesus comes to John the Baptist to get baptized. And John says, Well, no way. I need you. I need you to baptize me. And Jesus responds, He says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' obedience is the second snapshot that Matthew gives of this whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. The person who follows Jesus' commands by doing and teaching others has righteousness, so different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus came and he did perfectly obey the law. He is the model of human flourishing. Just like we were intended to live, he actually lived it. He offers forgiveness for everyone who will place their trust in him. But he didn't just forgive us, right? He he saved us to bring about this wholehearted, whole person righteousness, this this whole devotion to God. Jesus completed and accomplished the, the story, the promises, the hopes. It all pointed to him. We need to meet Jesus and be changed by him. This is the only way that humans flourish. It is through Jesus that we live the way that God always intended us to. It's by Jesus transforming us that that he makes us, he causes us to be salt and light in this world. But maybe your view of Christianity, your view of religion has always looked and felt maybe a bit more like the scribes and the Pharisees. It's always been to you a system of rules, or maybe you know it's not, but you keep falling back into this default mode of I've got I've to gotta obey this system and these rules in order to make myself clean. You try really hard by your power to do all the good things that you can You more or less follow this code of rules that that you have adopted as the right ones. You work really hard to choose the right, but it's all on your own power. And deep down, you know it's not working. You know it's not enough. Like the prophet said, we need God to come. We need God to change our hearts. We need him to cleanse us. We need him to write the law in us, to write Torah on our hearts. We need God to give us his spirit that actually empowers us to walk in obedience to his commands. And if you've given your life to Jesus, you know what it's like to be changed by Jesus. I heard a pastor once compare it to uh, your palate maturing right as you get older uh, w- w- when you're a little kid maybe you don't remember this when you're a little kid you just like bland things right like like plain old craft macaroni and cheese to you is a fillet mignon right but as you get older you, you develop these these tastes your palate's maturing when god changes you there there might be some ways that instantly change in your taste and your desires to obey him but others might take Years and years, and and even as he changes them, it it doesn't mean that we obey perfectly, but you'll notice that not only does your taste to obey God changes, but your distaste for disobedience changes too, right? You you discover that that sin that you just used to love, that that you just used to saturate yourself in, man, now it, it makes you grieve when you fall back into it. It makes you mourn like Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, This is all Jesus, who hasn't come to abolish but to fulfill all of the story. And everyone else in the story was just pointing to Jesus, who is the substance. Jesus is the true and better Adam who doesn't sit by and watch humanity while they're tempted by sin. No, he goes and battles sin for us and conquers death. He's the true and better Noah. He's the better ark that we enter into in order to be saved from judgment. He's the true and better Moses who doesn't only arbitrate the law to us but lives out God's instructions perfectly, dies in our place in order to redeem us. He's the true and better King David who doesn't use innocent people to build his kingdom, but as the innocent one, he lays down his life for his people. Jesus has come to give life to the full, to his people, so that we would flourish, not just in eternity, but right now. I wonder, is that you? Have you met Jesus? Has he given you a heart that beats for him, a heart that treasures him? Are you living life that points the world to him and because you're empowered by his spirit to live this way? Are God's people flourishing like the people of God are supposed to so that the world would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven? Jesus is after a deeper obedience. It's an obedience of the heart. And we'll get to unpack that over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Jesus we we thank you for your word we thank you for for everything that always pointed to you whether whether we've seen it before or not Jesus we we thank you that you did live a, a perfectly obedient life we thank you that you saved us from sin but lord we know scripture's clear that we're not just forgiven sinners, and it stops there, but, but you, you want us to live lives that glorify you, lives that are flourishing, lives that can only reflect you because you've changed us, because you've given us your spirit, because you've written your very law on our hearts, because you're empowering us to walk in your statutes, in your rules. God, will we long to be a people that, that love you, that love obeying you, that love following you, that love pointing this world to you. Jesus, when we, when we fall back into rule-following mode, would you so quickly wake us up from that dead way? We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.